Let us turn in our Bibles, please, for the message of the morning. We'll find our text in this blessed passage here in Second Timothy. <clears throat> and in verse 12 we read, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I announced that I would bring a message today on this new confession and the developments as they related to the General Synod of our own church and also the meeting of the United Presbyterian Church's General Assembly in Boston. And of all the years that we've stood here and dealt with these great questions as a congregation, I come before you today to report a situation which has developed which I frankly never thought would take place in my lifetime. But it is taking place and it brings the uh, sequence of the events in which you and I and which this church have been so intimately related through these years to, I would say, their final climax. We have come to the very end of the road. There were all manner of people at the time of our great separation who said, well, I'm going to stay in the church. I'm not going to leave it like you people are doing. And I'm going to stay until they change the confession. As long as they have the doctrinal standard that way and as long as they don't touch the book, why, I can still stay in this church. And uh, we tried to argue with them and say that the apostasy was here and the liberals were in control and you couldn't uh, redeem the church and straighten it out. It was impossible. It would continue to get worse and worse. But we never thought that the liberals would go so far as actually to change the doctrinal standards. They had the church in their hands without changing them. But for reasons which are known to them and which are now very apparent to us, they have decided to go all the way. And they are not only changing the confession, but they are removing the confession from the place of authority and binding obligation in the lives of ministers and elders and in the commitment of the church. The reason for it is very simple. These gentlemen have decided that the church itself is going to be a part of a larger church before very long, and they're laying the groundwork for the larger church rather than thinking about the past and their history. Now, this is a situation which we have seen come to its consummation in Boston. Last year, there was proposed what they call the Confession of 1967. And uh, in order to make it a part of the Constitution or to make it the Constitution of the Church, it takes some time to get the necessary votes and 
two general assemblies and two-thirds of the presbyteries. And so the soonest, the soonest date on which they could consummate this whole program would be 1967. And so 1967 will be the day at which time it's finally adopted. And there is no question but what it's going to be adopted. Last year when we went and we had our own general synod in Columbus alongside of this, there was considerable tension and a certain uncertainty in the General Assembly as to how things were going to shape up. But this year there is none. In fact, the conservative element that was in the church that gave some indication that they would really fight this and if they did fail they would leave the church has all but evaporated. There is virtually nothing left, and even the few men who raise questions about this have now announced publicly that they can live with it, and uh, the Committee on 15, which brought in its report of review, which had placed on it one or two of these men, was unanimous in their report. So the whole thing is going to be accomplished now in a wonderful love fest and in a spirit of unanimity, and during the coming year, they'll get their two-thirds of presbyteries without any difficulty. And next year in Portland, Oregon, at this time, they then will have disposed of the Westminster Confession of Faith as the binding standard in the church. And they will have come into the possession of a new creed, which they call the Confession of 1967, but which in effect is not a new creed because it does not replace or take the position of the Westminster standards. Now may I explain to you what they have done and the way they've done it, and then I have four major things that I want to discuss concerning the Word of God and the standards. What these gentlemen have done is to... develop a plan whereby they can get out from under the obligations which binds them to an infallible Bible. The ordination vows have always said, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And the whole design of this program is to get them out from under the obligations to confess the infallibility of the Holy Scriptures and with it the inspiration of the Bible. And the way they have done it is to take the Westminster Confession and remove it from its binding place in the church and lower it to a lower platform a historical platform, they now call it. And instead of the church just having the Westminster Confession on this lower platform, they said, we'll go back and we'll bring in some of the other creeds of the past and we'll, call our, we'll make ourselves a book of confessions. But these confessions will not be binding on the church like the old Westminster Confession was binding on the church. There'll be a historical record of how the Spirit led the church at different periods, different times, and Westminster was a very good confession 300 years ago for that day and for that time. Now we must develop a confession for our day and for our time, and a little later those who pass on and come after us, they'll have to have some confessions for their day and their time. 
And so they have demoted the great Westminster Confession to a lower historical level and placed it alongside of these other groups that they mention here. And they're all in a succession, a historical succession, and they're valuable. The church can be guided. The church can be inspired. The church can learn from them. But they are not the rule of faith and practice to which we're bound, and they no longer bind us to the Bible as the infallible Word of God. And this leaves the church open then to almost any kind of a belief or opinion that anybody wants to have. But this situation creates a condition where when you say, oh, you've done away with the Westminster Confession. No, we haven't done away with it, sir. We've got a book of confessions now. We used to just have one. Now we've got six. And no matter what you say or where you come at them, uh, they can say, well, here, why, you say we don't have the virgin birth in this? No, we don't have the virgin birth, but it's back here in these older creeds, and it's in here, and that's a part of our book of confession. And when I read this passage today here in the Holy Scripture about the end time, deceiving and being deceived, but continue thou in the things which thou hast heard and been assured of, remembering of where thou didst get them. Because here you've got a situation where you can get this double talk back and forth and the ordinary person listens to this and says, well, well, they've still got this thing. They haven't done away with it. They've made, made a book of confessions. But they don't understand that in doing that they have torn the church completely away from its moorings. They have broken the very foundation rock on which the church has stood. Now, as I told you when I opened this message, I never dreamed I'd see the day when they would remove completely the Westminster Confession from the place of binding obligation in the life of the church. Now, another one of these great ordination vows to which we subscribe is that we accept, we adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. Now, that's all gone. There's no longer any system of doctrine that we have to subscribe to. In fact, we heard men up in Boston on the floor of the General Assembly openly saying there is no system of doctrine in the Bible. And so they've eliminated the idea of a system of doctrine and they've eliminated their obligation to confess and to uh, declare the infallibility and the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Now that's what's happened. Nothing could be more revolutionary, nothing could be more extreme than what they've actually done. And yet having done it and doing it in this particular way, they can come back and forth and they say, well, here we're getting a much broader confessional uh, relationship than we ever had before. We were only had one creed before, but now we've got six of them. And so no matter how you go at it, no matter how you look at it, they're going to be in a position to deceive and mislead an awful lot of people. I have their confession here, the new one as they call it, and uh, <clears throat> there are four things that I want to point out about it to you, then I want to read you some of the uh, questions that we have raised. What we did yesterday at, there in Boston was to go through this brief creed, it's not very long, it's very short and point out, they call it the Creed of 67, so we went through and developed 
67 statements or theses in relationship to it where they're in great error, at least 67 of them. And then we took it down there and delivered it to the General Assembly and posted it on their door down there so at least it'd be a record for history to see. Now let me read you the very first statement in this new confession of faith, the very first one. The church confesses its faith when it bears a present witness to, the, to God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now somebody reading this, well, what's wrong with that? That sounds pretty good. No, beloved, it is completely wrong. It is totally wrong. Do you know how the church confesses its faith? Not in a present witness of some kind to uh, the grace of God in Christ. The church confesses its faith when it declares what God has revealed to us in his whole counsel. And that gives to you this system of doctrine. That gives to you everything that God's been pleased to reveal to us. And that's exactly what the old Westminster Confession of Faith did. And so in our first statement here, the church confesses his faith not when it, quote, bears witness to God's grace in Jesus Christ, but when it declares the truth of the whole counsel of God as revealed in the Holy Scripture. We're not confessing our faith out of some sort of an experience in our day and calling it the grace of God. We are confessing our faith in what God has been pleased to reveal to us concerning himself and his purposes and his plan for our deliverance. And to confess your faith on the basis of some experience at the present time which you say is God's grace in Jesus Christ is 2,000 years away from the time God gave us his revelation. And you have here at the very beginning of this confession the recognition that they're confessing it in our day in what they call the grace of God in their experience in our day and it'll be different 10 years from now, it'll be different 50 years from now and it was different 300 years ago and it was different 600 years ago and it was different back there in the second century and in the first century. No, beloved, our confession of our faith which we make in Westminster standards and which has been summarized there by our forefathers is a confession of what this book teaches from beginning to end. And the present century doesn't modify it. That's the difference. That's the cleavage. That's the line. And we, thank God, bear the name Bible Presbyterian. And never did I thank God more for it than this past week as I see this great departure from the Bible. And God's enabled us to stand here in this land and call ourselves Bible Presbyterians. And that's exactly what we are. Now you see the difference. But the ordinary person reads this, well, isn't this nice? The church confesses its faith when it bears a present witness to God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now we come to the second thing I want you to see. After they've laid the Bible aside as your final authority, they move in to bring up Jesus Christ. And they talk about Christ is the word of God and Christ is the great authority and Christ is the great one. And it sounds all right, beloved. It would sound very, very good if you didn't understand what was taking place. And then when you read this carefully, you see exactly what is taking place. 
perfectly willing to lift up this Christ and speak to him as our authority so long as he is the same as what I have in the Bible. But when you take away the Bible and then you come along and deal with this Jesus and begin to exalt him and he is separated from the Bible and the words that's in the Bible and the words that's in Christ are two different things, then I'm not willing to accept that. And we cannot be willing to accept that. Beloved, the Christ who is the living word is identically the same word which is given to us in Holy Scripture. You cannot divide Christ from the Holy Word written. You cannot separate Christ from the infallible Scriptures. And the Christ of the Bible is the only Christ that you and I will have anything to do with. And what we have here is that they separate him from the Bible and then they take him and they recreate him and they build him up and they pay all this tribute to him in extravagant terms. But never once does he come around again to be the virgin-born son of God. And that in that general assembly yesterday... Some dear old brother, it was a shame to see these dear old elders. It just broke your heart. <clears throat> Wanted to know why they couldn't put the word virgin birth in the new confession. It's not there. It's not there. And a motion was seconded that they'd be put in, and then nobody would speak in favor of it. Nobody would speak in favor. And it was voted down. I think it got about 10 votes out of a total of around 800 and something. And they turned down the virgin birth of Christ as it relates to his person. They have a different Christ. They have a different Jesus from now on. And you can understand when you study this and see all that's involved in it, the whole second part of this great confession has to do with social programs and the poverty programs and the race program and peaceful coexistence and war and sex. It's all in here. And beloved ladies and gentlemen, the Christ that they're going to have and whose name they're going to use and of whom they're going to sing is going to be the leader of the social action programs that they're going to engage in in the days that are ahead of us in this country. And that's what it's going to be. Here's one of these theses. To reform the church does not mean that the church must separate Christ from the inspired scriptures. Christ and the scriptures are one. To be guided by the various creeds in the book of confessions, all these different ones are putting in there, is entirely different from adopting the Westminster Confession of Faith as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. Now may I turn with you to these old standards and I want to read the changing of the ordination vows. You see, that which binds us is a vow. It's an oath before God. And I stand in your pulpit today, which you people maintain by your gifts and by your presence. And you know that I am bound in this pulpit by solemn vows, as solemn as any marriage vows, as solemn as any vows that any man could take. And because of these vows, you have reasonable assurance 
that the man who stands in this pulpit will present to you the truth of the word of God so that you can be instructed by God and your children can be saved and then be edified in the things of God. And it's these solemn vows that bind me to this pulpit and bind you and me together in this fellowship which we maintain in testimony to Jesus Christ. Now let me read you the old ones that we've always taken. The old Presbyterian Church had them. We just took them the same, of course. And then I'm going to read you the new ones. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Here's a rule. It's infallible. It's the only one. It's a rule that relates to your faith. That is what you believe. And it's a rule that relates to your practice. That is what you do. What you do and what you believe is based upon an infallible rule that God has been pleased to give us, and it's the only one you have. And it's the only one you ever will have. It's the only one you ever will need. It, it's all here. All right, now let me read you how it stands in the, new, in the new book. They completely rewrote it. And in the rewriting, they came up with this statement. Do you accept, you don't believe it now, you just accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church Catholic and by the Holy Spirit, God's word to you. Now remember, that takes the place of the one that says we have an infallible rule and the Bible is that infallible rule. But now, how they change it. You don't believe anymore. The belief is out of the question. You just accept this scripture. The old, to be the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church Catholic. It's a unique thing. It's authoritative. But it's only in witness to Jesus Christ. It's not a rule for you. It's not an infallible guide for you. It's not at all. We, we just laid the Bible aside. It's just a witness in this regard into this person, Jesus Christ. And what they have done, as I've tried to tell you, is to lay the Bible aside, bring out this Christ which they have, put him up here, and he's the one now that this witness is being given to, but of course he's not virgin born. Am I making this plain to you people? Can you understand what a, a tremendous moment of transition has come in the life of this great movement in our land? And thank God you and I have been on the right side of this struggle all these years, and if we ever were being vindicated, it's being vindicated now, but what a tremendous price is being paid and what it means in the life of this great republic of ours. But notice, it says it's only unique and authoritative, well, there are lots of books that are authoritative. They've got a lot of them over here in the library in the field of law, but they're not inspired and they're not infallible. There's a lot of some authoritative roadmaps you can get out here to look over the state of Pennsylvania, and I had one not long ago, and it was wrong. And it sure caused me a lot of grief because I thought I could follow it. And now, by the Holy Spirit, God's word to you. It's only that thing in that book that the Spirit speaks to you about that you would accept. And one man pointed out that this makes this thing a subjective matter. 
it's a subjective matter. But the way the language is used, the ordinary person would read it, well, maybe that's not so bad. We can go along with that. No, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is God's Word, whether I believe it or not. The Bible is God's Word, whether I accept it or not. The Bible is God's Word. It's objective. It's eternal. It's a standard of revelation which he gave to us through the prophets and the apostles, and here it stands. And if you listen to its message, you'll become a child of God. If you reject its message, this is the word which will judge you in that great day when you stand before your Creator. So they've got something unique and authoritative, but it's not infallible, and it's not inspired. And that's it. All right, now let's look at the second question. This is the good one that we have and they used to have. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? This is the way it came out after they got through working it over. <clears throat> Will you perform the duties of a minister of the gospel in obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of the Scripture? and under the continuing instruction and guidance of the confessions of this church. No system of doctrine anymore. You've got some confessions, you can go read them if you want to. They're not uh, bearing testimony to the infallible word of God at all. There they are. The Presbyterian Church in the United States, the United Church, ceases when it adopts all this to be a confessional church anymore. It's not bound to a confession, as it has been in the past. And the reason for it is, ladies and gentlemen, is that they don't believe the Bible. Professor Dowie of Princeton Seminary of all the places, for this thing to come out, Princeton of all the things, he's the leader of the whole thing, the chairman. He got up and explained that when they accepted the inspiration of the Westminster Standard, then the church was embarrassed and in trouble because it had to defend every passage and every declaration that you had in the Scripture. He says, now we won't have to do that. And he made it plain that the one big thing they're doing is laying aside inspiration so they can be free to go ahead. We're not going to lay aside inspiration. In fact, if we don't have an inspired book from our God, you and I don't have anything to believe that's worthwhile so far as heaven and hell is concerned and so far as the destiny of our souls is concerned. And the God who sent his son down here to die for us is the God who gave us a record which you and I can trust and which we can have preached to us from the pulpit which we maintain by our gifts. Now I want to show you what they say about the Bible in the confession itself. And you have in the confession this section dealing with the Bible. And it's very plain that they have rejected the inspiration. It's not in it. The infallibility is not in it. But also there's language in here, though, that is of such a nature that if a person wants to be deceived, he can. If a person wants to have something he can hold on to, he, I, he, he's got some words here he can hold on to. And let me read you this. These scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Well, you'd say if the Holy Spirit gave guidance to the Holy Scriptures, they, might be, they must be all right. And they would be, in your view and my view, 
Anything the Holy Spirit has anything to do with inspiring the Bible, we can trust it. But notice, the scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men. Conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the places and times at which they were written. They reflect the views of life and history and the cosmos which were then current. So we have this word nevertheless that cuts the very life out of any idea that the Holy Spirit inspired inspired the scriptures so that they would be free from error as we confess and as our own creed uh, bears witness to. But uh, they're just the words of men. Now in the Westminster Confession we read, The authority of the Holy Scriptures for what it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. This is what they've cut out. This is what they've broken with. Beloved, you can't build a church without building it upon a Bible that's trustworthy. You can't build a life unless you have the Lord Jesus Christ as he's given to us in the Bible to be your Redeemer and your comfort. You can't build a home. You can't build a nation. Beloved, you can't build anything unless you build upon the foundation that God has given us, his word and his revelation and his will and his law. Now in this passage on the Bible, they have this. The one sufficient revelation of God is Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate. Now that sounds like it's getting very good. But the one sufficient revelation of God just isn't Jesus Christ. The Bible's in that, ladies and gentlemen. The sufficient revelation of God is in his word, and with it comes Christ. And so they've thrown off the word, and now they've gotten down just limited to this Christ. To whom the Holy Spirit bears unique and authoritative witness through the Holy Scriptures. That's the same phraseology you got in their ordination vows now which are received and obeyed as the word of God written. Now those words, the word of God written, were inserted since last year as a result of the activities of one or two of these conservative men. And these men are saying, now we got that phrase, the word of God written in there, and that's something we can hold on to. But beloved, the word of God written is a word which is infallible. And the word of God written of what they're speaking here in the next paragraph just down below it tells us that it is the words of men conditioned by the thought forms of their day. So in the one paragraph dealing with the Bible, there's a sentence in here that you could turn to and say, well, it talks about the word of God written. But a little later in the same paragraph, it says that this word of God is the word of man and it's been conditioned by the thought forms of that day. So what they would seem to say at one point, they deny at another point, and you have to take the total document. And the gentleman who presented this thing, Dr. Skinner from St. Louis, who used to be in the Germantown Church over here, was chairman of the committee on 15, and Dr. Dye, both of them said, there have been a few changes in verbal expression, but in no way do they affect the major thrust 
poorly position which is taken here, which is, beloved, that they've given up infallibility and inspiration. Now, this is what's so sad. There are a few gentlemen in the church like Dr. Lamont from the first church in Pittsburgh, and a few other men who said they were going to fight and they were going to fight, and some men even said when they changed the creed they would leave. But that's all been changed. That's all been changed. Even the successors to Dr. Barnhouse over here, his paper, they wrote about this thing, and the question was, would they break when this came? And, no, Mr. Russell Hitt said up there in the paper just yesterday that all this changes it for them, and they're going to live with it. And what has happened is that the man who stayed in, who said someday they would fight, when the hour came to fight, some little words were put alongside of them, which they kind of held on to, and then they went on with a whole great program. And that is what has happened. And it's sad. It means, beloved, that the responsibility for carrying on the great testimony of the centuries to the infallible word of God in no small degree has been committed to you and to me and those who are outside the camp and who believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And in the history of our century, God Almighty has enabled us to span this particular period. 1896, Charles Briggs in New York at Union Seminary was put out of the church because he questioned the inspiration of the Holy Scripture. And now the whole Westminster Confession is put out of the church in any binding way because it teaches the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. 1896, 1966, 70 years. And in this little span that you and I have been able to see of our lifetime, we came to the great climax in 1936. And that's when the liberals had control of the church and they used their power to discipline Dr. Machen and your pastor. And we had our great separation. But it's been 30 years. And in that 30-year period, they've gotten so control of everything that they have that they brought this thing around to where now they can actually go ahead and remove the doctrinal standard from its place of binding authority, put it down on a historical level, get them another sort of a statement here which will be a nice instrument in their hand to support their social action programs and go on down the road with the whole apparatus, the machinery, and the multiplied millions of investments which were put there by people who believe what you and I believe today. One thing we did up there yesterday, it's the close of this, See, they've even given up all their ideas of Calvinism. They, they've got a universalism here. They don't believe in total depravity anymore. And they've got a general universalism here that does away with the elect and the ideas of predestination. That's all gone. That's a minor thing anymore. It's all been removed from the creed and the system of doctrine. And they're simply preparing the way now for them to move rapidly into this larger great ecumenical circle and the United Presbyterian Church before very long will be a part of this great union movement called the Con Consultation on Church Union, and that will take place before too long as things move along. But this is what we said to these gentlemen yesterday. No other, I know how they must have felt about it. But when you read this and see what they have done to all intents and purposes, the word Presbyterian in their name doesn't mean anything anymore. 
they, they, they don't teach what Presbyterians have always believed. Presbyterians have always believed, all through these 300 years, as well as the Methodists and the Episcopalians, that the Bible was the infallible Word of God. We've always believed that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Well, it's all been laid aside. So we suggested that they ought to give up the word Presbyterian, let us have it. We're the ones that are fulfilling what it says, and, uh, and now since the issue's over the Bible so much, you know, I can say the goodness of God. You people have no idea how God led us in that day when we put the word Bible up in front of the word Presbyterian. What a precious thing he did for us in the great history of the Christian movement. And we can be grateful for it. And now in this hour, when this whole thing has moved along and they've laid aside the confession as they have, we've come to the end of the road. There's nothing more they can do. They've done it all. A little leaven will leaven the whole lot. That's what the Bible says. And the little leaven has wrought its evil and moved on out until now we have this great... May I point out something else to you? I think you'll be interested in this because we're looking to the future as well as to the past in this struggle. But in the great plan which has been unfolded now in Dallas for this uh, church union between these eight groups, Northern Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian, Methodist, EUB, the Episcopal, all of them are going, you see, into this thing. And this is why I want you people to understand these things. And that's why I'm taking my time on Sunday morning in my pulpit and on this radio to tell you people these things so you people will understand the hope which I have right now for preserving true Christianity in this country is in the hearts of the people who believe the Bible. That's where the hope is. And we're trying to get these stories across to you people so you can see which is actually happening. Do you know what they're saying about this new great union movement? They're going to come together, going to agree to all get in one church, but they're not going to write their constitution for maybe 30 years. You realize what that means? From 1 to 30 is a span here. From 30 to 60 is the second span and from 60 to 90 is your third span. And they're going to bring all of them together on agreement of unity, 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 unity. We've got to unite. We've got to unite. Oh, the basis doesn't matter. Just some general statement. And then after we're all together, after 30 years, maybe we'll be able to come to some agreement as to what will be our great constitution. And this is the reason for it. The reason for it is that all the older people in the country and in the churches are still committed to these things. Still committed to these things. Here's 60 on up. Here I've been with this church. I've been here 33 years with you people. There's a span of a life right there, a whole generation. And the one that's coming up here, up to 30, it's the group from 30 to 60 now. It's got real control of these seminaries and schools and the machinery. And this is the group that's going to make this group be what they ought to be. And so as the present 30-year span moves up and the new 30-year span comes in, by the time this present 30-year span of the younger generation reaches up, they'll have them pretty well of one mind, pretty well of one persuasion, and they'll be able to adopt the kind of a document that they want to be their constitution. Now what's the trouble with all this? The trouble with all this, beloved, and the one thing that gives to me confidence is that there's a God in the heaven.
and that he will honor the word which is preached. We believe that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And you go out and preach this message that Christ died and Christ rose again and you accept him and you become a living son of God by faith and then he is your life and he is your strength. Then his word is for you and there's no difficulty in your accepting it at all. Beloved, I have no trouble accepting the word of God. When you will believe, and I used it there the other night on the radio, and they just, they just try their best to obscure what you're trying to say. But I remember the meeting I had out in the state of Oregon with the university there, and I went to those students. And you go into these students, you go anywhere, and you talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. An empty tomb. A living Christ. Not a myth. Not a mystery. A living person who ascended to heaven and is coming back. And once you lay your hands upon a Christ who was raised from the dead and emptied that tomb, you have laid your hands upon the truth. And whatever our Savior believes, I can believe. And whatever he said, I can accept. And when he said, the words that I speak unto you, they are not mine, but the Father's that sent me. When he said, all things written in the law and the Psalms and the prophets and the law of Moses concerning me must be fulfilled, they will be fulfilled. And once you accept an empty tomb, once you accept a risen Christ in his new glorified body, once you enter into the supernatural that entered into human history and gave us a living Redeemer, you'll have no trouble with his miracles. You can believe them. You'll have no trouble with the virgin birth. You can believe that. In fact, it just beautifully explains the nature of this kind of a person who would come from glory and enter into the grave and taste death for you and me and then rise again. And this is the Christ of faith. This is the Christ of power. This is the Christ of salvation. This is the Christ of the Bible, infallible. And true. Oh, the Christ of this modern reconstruction. They can have their phony Jesus because that's all that he is. Now, I meant to go a little deeper in this, get into the mysteries. They want to mystify everything. When you come to the cross, well, it's a mystery. When you come to these other things, it's a mystery. And they would shroud all the grand declarations of Scripture when it relates to this matter of blood and vicarious atonement propitiation. They'd shroud it in mystery, mystery, mystery. No, beloved, what God did for you on the cross isn't a mystery. It was a transaction. And he wants you to understand what that transaction is. And when you see what was accomplished on that cross, no theory, no mystery, then you can rest your soul in that message and believe it, and you can find comfort and security and liberty in Jesus Christ. Well, there it is, beloved, and it's the history of our century. And we're in the middle of it. And we're pleased to preserve a great testimony. Thank God for it. Thank God you can be a part of it. Thank God you can see what's taking place. Thank God you're not being deceived. Thank God your eyes are open. Thank God you live in a country where we can still talk like this. Thank God. 
We'll print this, 67 theses, it's all here. We're going to give it away all over the country. Here is the embryo of their ecumenical church. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee that we can be enlightened, and we thank thee for what thou hast done for us. And oh, bless, oh, bless the testimony of our Bible Presbyterian men. We thank thee for those who've gone before us. For Dr. Machen and Dr. James E. Bennett and these other men who've labored before us. And we thank thee that thou hast kept us in the straight course and that we haven't been defected. To the right or to the left, thou hast kept us in the straight course. And now we can see the position which we occupy in the span of the history of our day. And, Father, it hath pleased thee to take the weak things, the foolish things, the things which are not, to bring to naught the mighty. And, oh, we thank thee for the simple faith of the thousands in India who are standing. And may we as a people also be true. Amen.